a phone or something that you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. You can open to 1 Samuel 21. Um, so 1 Samuel's Old Testament book, 1 Samuel 21. We um, here at Redeemer typically are working our way through a book of Scripture, um, just kind of week by week, chapter by chapter, moving through um, as long as it as long as it takes. Um, as we do that, um, right, we're, we're trusting that the Lord just He speaks, right? That that not all of Scripture is is as clear cut as some. Some of it we have to work a little harder. We have to dig a little deeper, um, and yet we are asking the Lord to speak. And so as we have been in Samuel, um, I, I think I've even been a little bit stunned at how um, relevant it is felt um, as we just see political instability um, is really one of the primary things. And so if you haven't been with us, just a brief um, touch of recap. Um, 1 Samuel is, is a historical narrative book, right? It is, it is telling a story that's roughly 3,000 years old, about 1,000 a, a years prior to Jesus, of the, the nation of Israel, who is God's chosen people, right, going from a, a period of judges where they're ruled kind of in a tribal fashion to having a united uh, monarchy in their first king. The issue with this is that ultimately God is their king, that he has protected them, he has led them, he has provided for them, he has won battles both with them and without their effort, right, like that he has been their king. And in their rejection, one of the things they've said is, we want to be like the other nations, we want to look like the other nations, and so, God, we're choosing to reject you. Um, and so, 1 Samuel is telling the story of this from the prophet Samuel up to Saul, who is the first king, um, and now to David, who is the anointed king, and yet Saul is still the king. He's still in power, and yet David knows he's going to be the next king. And so, things have gotten uh, a little bit hairy politically, um, that Saul has gone from being ministered to and soothed by David to wanting to kill him. Saul... In his, in his panic, in his paranoia, has turned against his daughter, has turned against his son, has tried to kill his son, and is now hunting David to kill him. Right? David has won a battle for Israel in, in taking out Goliath. Like Saul has benefited from David's role. Um, and, and David at this point could say, Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not innocent in all regards, but I'm innocent in trying to take the throne from Saul. And yet Saul wants him dead. And so last week we left off with Jonathan, um, the son of the king, but the friend of David having said, I'm going to choose what God has chosen. I'm going to support David. And he helps get him out. Um, and Saul is on a rampage. Um, he's just kind of coming unglued at the seams. And so we're going to pick up this week in 1 Samuel 21. Let's um, begin in verse 1. Then David came to Nob. Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here." And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And the priest, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? 
So the priest gave them the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped here in a cloth behind the ephod. But you will take that, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, so give it to me. All right, so what's going on now is David is fleeing from the king, right, who has people, resources everywhere, and he needs some things. He needs provisions, right? And so he goes um, to this city. Um, that's no, Remember, Shiloh had been kind of the priestly city. It's been wiped out. Now we have um, Nob here. And he goes to the priest, to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech recognizes him, right? He knows David because David was a part of the king's court. And it would, not, it would have been really unusual for a king's court member to show up alone. They always traveled in, in parties. And so he's nervous about that. Um, very likely, he's also heard about what went on at Naoth, right? This kind of spiritual center where the king tries to pursue David and everyone who shows up kind of enters a prophetic trance, right? So that David is able to, to run and to escape. And so whether he's nervous because he's wondering what is God doing, or if it's simply that he's in the presence of royalty and it's an unusual situation, we see that he's, he's like, okay, what's, what's going on? He comes out trembling. Now listen, Ahimelech is the brother of Saul's chaplain. When Samuel, who was the prophet, left Saul and said, I'm not gonna, you won't see me again, um, he um, brought Ahimelech's brother in as his chaplain. You see that in chapter 14, verse 3. Um, that means that Ahimelech is also the grandson of Eli, um, the, the first priest that we meet in this book, who raises Samuel. And so David is not sure if he can trust Ahimelech, right? If his brother is working for the king. And so you see that in some of the language that David uses. That he, he says, the king has sent me on a, manner, on, a, on a matter. Is he referring to Saul? Or is he referring to God, right? Like he kind of leaves it a little bit um, ambiguous. And, and that he, he basically is trying to leave a lot of the priests so he's, he's kind of sussing out, like, is, can I trust this guy or not? I'm not going to give him a lot of information. Because if he's for me, I don't want him to be guilty. And if he's against me, I don't want him to really know what's, what's going on. Can I trust him? And, and so he asks, listen, do you have something to eat? I need something to eat. Right? He's looking for provisions. And the priest tells him, listen, I don't have any, any food to give you. All I have is the bread of, of presence. And what this is, and you can go to Leviticus 24, uh, five through nine, that the priests on the Sabbath, right, they would, they would set this out, 12 loaves, these big loaves that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to how this is described in, in Leviticus 24. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, um, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on a table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. 
It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. And so they would bake this bread, they would set it up, and after its designated time, right, it would be removed, and, and fresh bread would be set out, and the only ones who were supposed to eat it were the priests. Right? It was, it was a, a specific um, offering kind of back to them. And so we see the priest, like David is asking, and the priest is going to give it. Right? He's going to give provision for it. We'll come back to this in a minute. And then we have a little bit of foreshadowing, because the author of Samuel um, is, is, is writing well, that he just mentions this random guy that's there, this Gentile Doeg who was a servant of Saul. Um, Saul had defeated the Edomites. Most likely this was a guy that Saul has taken now into his service, and he's, he's over the herds. And we, we just see him standing there watching this scene. Um, and if you don't have a sense of foreboding, you should. Okay? Let's pick up in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and, mar- and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so think how strange is it that David now, he's got a sword, he's got Goliath's sword, he's got some bread, and now he heads off out of Saul's territory into enemy territory, into the Philistines. It's, the Gath is the city of the Philistines. It's Goliath's hometown. He happens to be carrying Goliath's sword with which he killed him, right? But you can see almost just the panic um, of he's trying to find a place to lay low. And, and most likely he's hoping to either blend in or to hire himself out as a mercenary, right? Of maybe the, kind of the enemy of my enemy is, right? We can be friends. And, and so he shows up hoping maybe not to be recognized. He is brought into the court and people start to whisper and they start to murmur. That's David. You know the song they sing about him, right? You, you remember what he did? Like people start to recognize him. David hears it and realizes my life is now in danger. I've made a mistake. This was not the place I needed to go. And and so where before he he kind of had some cagey language, cagey language with the priest. Now he has a ruse, and he just begins to act insane. In, in the Middle East, um, insanity was something that would have been viewed as kind of a curse from God. And so you just kind of left them alone because it seemed like God had already had done that. And they were almost like taboo, like you don't, you don't kill them. And so he begins to let spit run in his beard. He's making marks on the wall. He's, he's looking crazy. And it's convincing enough that the king is like, you brought this guy in as a mercenary? He's insane. Like, do I not have enough crazy people in my world? Like, I don't need him. Like, let him go. Right? And, he, and he sends him out. So let's continue. Verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. So David departed from there 
and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were there with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Right, so you almost pick up like just this frenetic, frantic pace, right? That he's run off to the priest, now he's gone to the Philistines, that didn't work, so now he's escaped to this cave. Um, there, people start to come to him, right? Folks from the margins, from the fringes, right, who are in debt or who are distressed. Like these folks begin to hear and they come to David and, and his mom and dad come, right? Because if, if the king is hunting you, your family is not safe. And so... Um, David's great-grandmother was, was Ruth, who was a Moabite, right? And so he takes his elderly parents at this point and basically stashes them in Moab, hoping that it would keep them safe, that it's a little bit outside the reach of Saul. And so you can almost just sense this in David, right? Like he's, trying to, he's grabbing what he can when he can. He's trying to find a place, right, to, to, to just breathe, and to say, okay, God, what is it that you're going to do here? Right? He, he says, I'm going to stash my parents in Moab until I see what the Lord will do for me. And then he's, he's just moving quickly and rapidly, trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. But that God is directing him. Right? That we have a prophet come to him in Moab and say, do not remain here. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so we see David's obedience and the Lord is still directing Still guiding. All right, so let's pick up in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him, so Saul was sitting at Gabi under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. All of his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as, it, as at this day. And then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to know to Ahimelech, of the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. And then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of the Lord for him? 
No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Okay, so we, we, we take a brief aside from David to now see Saul standing on a hill under this tree with a spear in his hand, and he's ranting. And he's just saying, like, he's, he's, he's paranoid, and he's angry, and it's everyone else's fault. Like, why have none of you told me? Like, why have you not found David? Why have you not known? Right, David and Jonathan had not made a covenant to conspire against Saul, and yet he's saying, he's accusing them of, you've known what Jonathan was doing. You've known this. And you just see the craze, probably like look and tone in his voice as people are standing there. And he's saying, who else could give you the things that I, I can give you? You think David's going to give you this? I'm going to give it to you. And he's ranting. And he's, he's asking for information and he's demanding. And what's interesting is that they're all silent. They sit there. One, probably because they're afraid. But two, right, because they've seen that David has been faithful to the king. He has won military victories for the king. And that Saul is acting insane. And then up steps Doeg. This Gentile, this non-Jew, this Edomite. And he's like, I've got some information. Right? And, and you, you can almost feel like the, the slime just come off the page. Right, where he's like, I'll tell you something. I saw something. And look at how he describes it. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions. And he, and he, and he makes it sound like, listen, they're conspiring together. He just started giving him this stuff to make sure that he was taken care of so that he can lie and wait against you. But that's not what happens. He doesn't share that the priest was trembling. Right? That he's asking, why are you here? Right? And that David requests things and that he even has questions and pushes back on it and then gives him these things. Right? Ahimelech was completely innocent of what was going on. Naive and unaware. And yet, Doeg riles up the king right, and says, hey, here's what's going on. Man, I saw it with my own eyes. He's conspiring against you. And so the priests come. Right? His conscience is clean. He's not the king's call, I go. He's not worried about the fact that he's hidden something. He doesn't know anything to share. And, and, and so the king begins to say, here's what you've done. And look at what Ahimelech says. Is today the first time I've acquired of God for him? Like, no. Like, David and I have a regular relationship. Like, I inquire of the Lord for him often. And by the way, king, he's your son-in-law. He's captain over your bodyguard. He's honored in your house, and I don't know a servant who's more faithful. He's going like, why would I have assumed that anything was up? Like David has only been for you. And so like you can almost imagine in this scene, like he's beginning to realize, this isn't good. But also going, really? Like Saul, it's, it's David. You can almost imagine just his, like, just the, his incredibility. I'm not going to get that word out. He was incredulous. There we go. Um, he, that he was incredulous against Saul here and, and defending himself and probably beginning to realize, hey, this, this is a bad... I'm not in a good situation here. But why else would he have brought everyone other than he was coming to answer the king with a clean conscience? Let's pick up in verse 16. 
And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. They knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. He's twisting things. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Right? So you, you see tension building now, right? Like he says, Hey, kill him. And the men who had been silent as he was ranting and raving continue to be silent and don't pick up a hand. Don't pick up a weapon. <laughs> They're like, we're not going to obey you over God. Like, we're, are you crazy? And then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck down the priest and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephesus. And Noah, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. It's this shocking scene. Right? As Saul realizes, hey, they're not going to kill him, he's, that he turns now to this man who's already betrayed, right? who's, who's a Gentile, who's a Pope. And he says, you do it. And Doeg kills them all. Eighty-five. And not only, remember, they've brought the priests to them. They've come to them. It says he went, goes back to their city, which was a couple of miles away, and just wipes out the entire community. Right? Like just this violent, insane rage of just destruction and destroying everything about them. It is insane. Right? But that Doeg believes, like, right last week we saw Jonathan choosing to leave the benefits of the king, to trust what Lord, the Lord has done in, in raising up David, here we see Doeg leaning into the king, believing that there is benefit in, in following this crazed person. And so he tries to show off and show out and just is violent and ruthless. We go back to 1 Samuel 15 for a moment. When they went, sorry, when Saul lost the kingship. Listen to verse 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he's talking to Saul, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel and opposed them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Right? These folks who are opposed to God. Then if we go to verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them, the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we have de devoted to destruction. Right. So he's, we see that he's not obedient. He has not done what God had asked of him. If we go down to verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, right, he begins to blame. 
took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as inequity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. So when God had asked him right, for obedience, he had not complied. And so the kingship was taken from him. And yet here, against God's own people, he's willing in a murderous rage to do what he was unwilling to do earlier. Right? We see him completely flipping this on its head. You remember Eli, because of his um, ungodly sons, had been told, listen, like the line of, of the priest is going to be taken from you. And in chapter 2, verse 33, he's told, listen, all of your descendants are going to die by the sword except one, right? And in tears, he will escape and tell what has happened. Listen to verse 33 of chapter 2. The only one of you whom shall not be cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. This is that coming to fruition. That what Eli was told would happen has now happened with just one son of Ahimelech um, escaping to find David. And so we see Saul attempting to wipe out the priestly line, right? That those who are trusting and honoring and serving the people for God's glory, while David is contrasted. He's like, listen, you stay with me. I'm going to keep you safe. Right? Who's, who carries weight and guilt because of what has occurred? So we continue to see this contrast between Saul and David. That Saul was demanding this twisted allegiance. Right? He's saying, like, I don't care what you think about David. I don't care what you think about God. You'll do what I say. And that Doeg was willing to meet that insane call. Alright, so chapters 21 and 22 are violent. Um, they're frenetic. And you may be asking, why, why this? Like, Why would we spend time looking at this section of Scripture? Um, it would be easy to get lost in this, all these strange places, the names, right? And you're like, is that a place or a name? Like you're confused as to what's going on. Um, in the violence, in the fact that this is a 3,000-year-old story in a culture that is very different than ours. And yet what we are going to continue to do in the heartbeat of what we do here is we're looking for Jesus. And right, and you're going, okay, wait a second. There was violence here. There was horror here. How do we find Jesus in 1 Samuel 21 and 22? First off, Jesus actually um, references this story. If we turn to Matthew 12, verse 1, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate, and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? So he takes this, this kind of strange story and he brings it into, right, in, into his teaching with the Pharisees. And what, what he's saying is, listen, the, the law, the ceremonial law, right, there was case studies, and it could be trumped right, if it meant life could be saved. Right? So you would rescue an animal on the Sabbath right, if it meant it was going to die if you didn't rescue it. You could rescue people on the Sabbath, even though you weren't supposed to do work. Like that life right, would trump ceremonial law. And so he says, listen, David needed provisions. He needed food. And mercy was shown. Life was valued and honored over an aspect of ceremonial law here. And the priests did right. And you should know this. Right? You should know that this is what has happened. Right? That they're looking for Jesus and they're looking for everything that He's done wrong. Everything, like they're trying to figure out what is it that, why do you claim to be who you are? Right? Um, John 5.39 right, says that people search the Scriptures looking for life, looking for Jesus, and they miss Him. Right? That's kind of what He's bringing up to the Pharisees here in Matthew 12. It's like, it's like you should have known this story. Right? You, there, there is a pattern for this. And then listen to Luke 24. After the resurrection, He says this in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? He goes back to the Old Testament and he begins to show all the things in scripture that were pointing them to Jesus. And the reason he told them in John 5, listen, you've missed me. You shouldn't have, right? You should have seen in Scripture how it was pointing to me ultimately. So what can we, what can we tie back from 1 Samuel 21 and 22 to King Jesus? First is this, that David, right, was, has been named king, has been anointed as king. He doesn't yet have the crown, right? And he is being hunted by the current king, and innocent people are dying. We have King Jesus born in a manger under the reign of another king who is ruthless and is going to hunt him down and innocent children are going to die. Right? Both of them step into kingship. Both of them step into the throne right? being obscure, being hunted with violence, being ignored. Right? Not in the way that we would anticipate a king coming. So they, there was the death of innocence. There was a proclaimed king while the other one, they were proclaimed king while another one ruled. In Matthew 8, 20, Jesus says, like the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Right? Like foxes have dens, and, right? but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we begin to see in David this frenetic, frantic pace of moving from one place to the other, living in caves, moving in the wilderness, which is going to continue with no place to lay his head. He is no longer in right, um, in the king's home any longer. We look as he's in the cave, right, this is just kind of a side, is that people just started showing up. They hear that David's there, and they just start showing up. Listen to verse 2. Everyone who was in distress 
Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. The margins, the fringes of society are being drawn to him. What type of people were drawn to Jesus? Those who were sick and knew they were sick. Those who were broken and knew that they were broken. Those who were far from him and knew they were far from him. It was not the high and mighty of society. It was not the religious elite. It was those who knew they needed a doctor of body, of soul, of spirit. So they are being drawn to him. In Acts, right, the, the disciples, those who were his inner circle, are called uneducated. Right? Listen in uh, 1 Corinthians, what it says about the church as Paul is writing in chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world. Right? Like This has kind of been God's game plan. That David right, has those who are low and despised and shameful drawn to him. And then we see it in Jesus. And then Paul tells the church, it's who, it's who makes up the church too. That God is using these things to shame the wise in this world. And so we see right then that David is lamenting. And that he is crying out. And so if you want to turn like in Psalm 57... Psalm 56, Psalm 142, Psalm 34, all four of these psalms are taken from these two chapters. Two of them while he's in the cave, and two of them while he's in Gath before the Philistines. So Psalm 34 and 30, sorry, 34 and 56 are written from Gath, and Psalm 57 and 142 are when he's in the cave. Right? Read those this week and see the language knowing the situation that he was in. We see him lamenting before the Lord. And, in, and so then Jesus, when He's on the cross, He is lamenting and crying out before God. Psalm 22, written by David. And so what He's saying is, listen, you should have expected a king that did not come in pomp and circumstance. Because David did not come in pomp and circumstance. He lamented, and he was in the wilderness, and he drew the fringes of society to himself. He had no place to lay his head. He was proclaimed king while another king reigned, and death followed him. And so when Jesus enters the scene, right, he's saying, listen, you should have known from 1 Samuel. Oh, we recognize this. We've seen this before. We've heard this. Right? That Jesus is the unexpected, should be expected king. That we can find Jesus even in obscure passages in 1 Samuel 21 and 20. And then finally this. That David is sustained. He is in some horrific circumstances. Like, would we not run past that because it's on a page or a little, we're a little bit removed from it? He was being hunted. He's having to stash his parents because he's not sure that the, the king of the, the country is going to kill them. He's fleeing and, and finding himself in these constant situations that are very, very difficult. In Psalm 56, 8, he says, like, God could count my tears. Like, you know all the tears that I've cried over this. Like, the David is not stoic here. He's not going, well, I will one day be king, and this is all okay. Circumstances are horrible. And he responds like they're horrible. 
he has fear and he has emotion and he cries out and he asks God for help. Um, in Psalm 34, listen to some of the language here. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from what? From all my fears. Verse 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Right? He's using fear and troubles. Verses 18 and 19, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He is not pretending like things are right and easy. He is admitting his circumstances are difficult. In church, many of you might resonate with that this week or over the months previous or maybe the months to come with sickness, with financial trouble, with fear, right? with, with wars and rumors of like all the, all the difficulty in this world. Right? His circumstances are legit and he's afraid. And what we're going to see in these psalms that in this unique circumstance of difficulty, the Lord is super near to him. And he's going to write some beautiful psalms and the Lord will deliver him. Right? And he is near to the Lord in this. You think about the life of David. When he's on the throne, he commits his biggest sin. There's a unique warning for us this morning. And in difficult circumstances, right, we, we have things stripped away to cry out to the Lord. And in comfort, we are often quick to pick up things that aren't Him. We look for things to satisfy that aren't Him. And so sometimes we war against our, our hard circumstances when it may be that the Lord is simply removing some things from our hand that were going to lead to our destruction. And he's with us in the midst of it. Right? That, that David sinned against the Lord when things were easy and comfortable, not when things were difficult. So church, would we be reminded of Scripture this morning that we should not be surprised at fiery trials? We are not alone in them. We're not alone. They are bringing refinement. Right? They're, they're, they're removing things from our hand. They're giving us eyes for Jesus. They're lifting our chins to see Him because this isn't our home. Right? Listen to what David says in Psalm uh, 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I will trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He asks this question, what can flesh do to me? Because he knows, one, that God is in control, and two, this isn't his home. Ultimately, down to verse 10. Um, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Church, because death has been defeated in the death of Jesus, because the, the, the bonds of sin have been broken and because Satan has been crushed. We are no longer enslaved to this world. We're no longer enslaved to the fear of death because this isn't our home. And the home that we have is for all eternity with God. And that is a greater reality than we can even imagine now. And so in the midst of that, we can say our circumstances don't dictate how God feels about us. We don't need to be surprised at fiery trials because this isn't our home and we have a unique opportunity to find our treasure in the midst of difficulty. Jesus is our King, and He's called us to follow Him, to know Him, to trust Him as He leads us back to the Father. 
That path, though, is not through comfort. That path is often through difficulty and trials. Listen once more from Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. David is in the midst of Samuel 21 and 22 when he writes these words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is not on the throne when he's saying that. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He had no good thing except God. And he would say, I lack nothing because I have him in the midst of my distress. Church, would we be a people who could cry out and agree with David, I'm crying, Lord. My circumstances are are hard. I have fear. And yet the truth is I lack nothing because I have you. You are sufficient for me in my time of distress. He is refuge for our soul forever. And our worship is not based on our circumstances either. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. He is in these horrible circumstances. He's going, hey, let's make much of God together. Because that's what's true. That's what's real, and that's what's going to anchor my soul. Without the throne, without the, with only a hope that He would one day be king, without the tabernacle in the wilderness, He's writing this from Psalm 34. Let's make much of Jesus together. And then finally, last verse. This is verse 22 of Psalm 34. The Lord redeems the life of His servant. None, none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Right now, if you feel like you are on the margins, like the fringes of society, that you are far from God, that's an open invitation. It's for you. You're not too far gone. The invitation is there, and none who put their hope and their refuge in Him will be condemned. If you feel like you are the elite, the invitation is still there. Right? He tells the Pharisees, look, find me in this. Don't miss it. Right? This world offers some honor, but I'll offer it for eternity. Don't miss it by doing what Doeg does and takes the promise of a king who couldn't really offer it to begin with. Jesus is saying, I'm going to offer peace and hope and joy and refuge now for all time. So church, I encourage you this week to, to read through these psalms. 34, 56, 57, 142. And ask the Lord in the midst of your circumstances, are you my refuge? The invite is there to find your hope and your peace in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You that You allow us to say, I'm crying. That You allow us to say, I'm afraid that You allow us to say that there are those who are coming for me and I don't know what I'm going to do. And yet we can also say, in all times, I will praise the Lord. And those seem so far apart. So Lord, would You give us um, faith to see how both can be true? Lord, would You help us understand that our circumstances don't dictate how You feel about us and they don't dictate whether we are worshiping or not. 
Father, would we not fall into the trap of comparing circumstances, but instead would we find refuge in you in small and in large difficulty, knowing that those who find their refuge in you will not find condemnation, but will find hope, peace, and life for all time. Jesus, we need you. Give us eyes to see you, even in difficulty. Jesus' name.